It is good to see you. If it's the first time you joined with us, we want to just say it's so good to have you with us today. Folks, today we're going to continue in the third part of our series. We're doing a series on reasons for belief. Now, as Kimberly alluded to, we have four kids, our youngest is 20, and they've all been through university, and the conversation at university at some stage is going to come around to this. Hi, my name's, say, Bob, and he's going to come up to your son or your daughter and say, hi, my name's Bob, and I'm an atheist. And these are the reasons why I'm an atheist. One, two, three, four, five. Actually, I gave you ten. If you were here for the very beginning, these are the ten reasons why I'm an atheist. Now, um, Joshua, tell me, did you say you were a Christian? Yeah. Tell me now, why are you a Christian? And many people at that stage seize up and they reach back to rather unusual answers like, well, I just believe. Jesus loves me, this I know, so the Bible tells me so. And the guy, to be honest, hasn't really been equipped in his Sunday school years or youth years or even times at church to answer in a credible manner why you are a Christian in a way that doesn't invoke straight away the Bible because some people think the Bible is a book of fairy tales. Have anybody met people that feel that way? Anybody met people? Yeah. So the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a reason. That's us. That's a command. It's pretty strong. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within and do so with gentleness and respect. The reason is the word apologia. or That's where we get the word apologetics from. So for those of you who just joined us today, I'm going to briefly for the first couple of minutes talk about a little bit so far what we've seen. We started off saying before we can even talk or have a conversation with our non-Christian friends at work or at school, people say, well, how can I even know anything at all? Remember, people talked about truth. Does it even exist? So, so far we looked at, I'm just summarising very quickly some of the weeks that have gone before, just two weeks. Number one, we've seen so far that truth about reality is knowable. Foundation. You can't start anywhere until the person you're talking to understands that. And also, with that, that the opposite of true is false. Remember, we spent a whole session on that. Very important. That's what we looked at, the very base platform. And then last week, we looked at three facts providing evidence for the existence of God. And we looked at, firstly, that there was a beginning. Christian parent, if you haven't got your head around that by now, you need to be able to grapple with that. There was a beginning. And there was a cause. Somebody or something caused this universe and this world and all this incredible life. And so we saw from the cosmological argument that we know that God is self-existent. He's timeless. Because something caused this stuff before it even happened. He created time, space and matter. And we looked at that. In the beginning, God created and we looked at that. And he's outside of time. He must be to make it. In other words, he's without limits, that he's infinite. And we looked that he, we saw last week that he's unimaginably powerful. Unimaginably. Since he created the entire universe out of nothing. And science agrees. 
Incredible power. And by the way, that was a personal God because he chose to convert a state of nothingness into time, space, material universe. And by the way, an impersonal force has no ability to make a choice. So a great question to ask your friends who wonder about God's existence is this. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? Christian, do not spend all the time defending. Put the burden of proof back on them. They have some crazy beliefs. Some of them believe that all this came from nothing. Well, we are going to attribute that to a God as we saw. What are they attributed to? You need to put the burden of proof back on them rather than being on the back foot all of the time answering questions. So, all of us have got to answer that question. If there is a God, I sorry, if there's no God, why is there something rather than nothing? That's a very good question. We all have to answer So we can either answer it with two options. Either no one created everything and something out of nothing. No one. Or someone. Or something created something out of nothing. Which view is more reasonable? Nothing created something? No. Because even Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music says nothing comes from nothing and nothing ever could. Julie Andrews knows that. So, then we looked at the second reason that pointed to God. There was incredible complex design, complexity, virtually everywhere in the universe. And therefore, where there was a design, we looked at buildings, we looked at computers, we looked at microbiology, we looked at genetics. Where there's design, there is a designer. There must be somebody who planned it, who created it. Complex design does not arise from nothing. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't re, uh, result as a, as a result of time and chance. There's always a mind, an intelligence, a designer behind design. So from the teleological argument, we know that God is obviously supremely intelligent. We have hundreds of thousands of PhDs with the best computers and the best science in the world trying to figure out how some of his creation works in cells. Oh, he is supremely intelligent to design life so in such a complicated manner and with such, this is what I like, precision. Talk to some of our geneticists here. If you want to go deep on that, you talk to Brian Martin. He worked with Francis Crick. It's a laboratory who, who discovered DNA, Crick and Watson. He will take you, in this series we've only got a chance to go this deep, he'll take you as far as you want to go to the bottom. The complexity is phenomenal. We saw that just even the DNA in a single nucleus of an amoeba is more information than the 30 sets of an encyclopedia. Botanica, perfectly ordered, word perfect. In precise matter. How many of you, by the way, have um, heard of the SETI program? SETI? Okay, yeah. You know that SETI was set up to try and discover if there was any intelligence out there. What was that? Jodie Foster on Contact. Remember that movie? And they spend billions of dollars looking for anything that gives any evidence of extraterrestrial life, some intelligence. And they start to get excited when they get the prime numbers. One, two, three, five, all the way up. I go, 
An intelligent mind must be behind that. If you just get a few prime numbers getting strung together, how much more in the cell of a DNA, which is perfectly ordered for hundreds of thousands of letters put perfectly together. Let's move on. We saw that this God was supremely purposeful since he designed so many forms of life to live in a specific ordered environment. Now, then we saw very quickly the universal moral law. There must be a universal moral law maker. I'm just quickly recapping. And when we say that a moral law exists, we mean that all people are impressed with a fundamental sense of right and wrong. Now, we're not talking about what people do. We're talking about what people uh, sense and feel. Everybody knows, for example, that love is superior to hate and that courage is better than cowardice. C.S. Lewis has written profoundly on this subject in his classic work, uh, Mere Christianity. Put it this way, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle or a man felt proud for double crossing. All the people have been the kindest to him. He says, you might as well try and imagine a country where two and two equals five. The moral law must have a source higher than ourselves because its prescription is clearly written on the hearts of all people. And we looked at that last week. Since prescriptions always have prescribers, and we have several doctors here, they don't just happen. You need a doctor to get a prescription. They point to a moral law prescriber. So from the moral argument, we know that God is, and we saw briefly last week, absolutely morally pure. His unchangeable standard of morality, which all actions are measured. Otherwise, morality is just what you think and I think. An atheist doesn't have a leg to stand on when he says, I have an objective basis for reality. I'm not saying they can't be moral, but I'm saying they haven't got an objective basis because our measure of standard comes from God. And this standard includes infinite justice and love. So, so far, we've looked at truth about reality is knowable. The opposite of true is false. It's true that a theistic God exists, evidenced by the beginning, the design and moral law. But who is he? What are his attributes? How would I know who this God is? So I could get to actually know this person. What are his characteristics? And where does the evidence point? Now that we've seen some evidence that God exists, last week specifically, to which God does all this evidence point? Does it point, as Martin just showed me, to this God? This arrived in his letterbox, the God of Islam. We're going to talk about that a little later on, not today. Let me tell you. Is it this one? Is it the God of the Bible? The God of deism or pantheism. Now, to answer this question today, we're going to get to, get to the guts of this. It's going to start to give you a hint as to who this God is. Today, we're going to look at eight attributes or characteristics of the beginner, the designer, and the moral lawmaker that he must possess. These are non-negotiables based on what we've seen. Then we're going to look at what the Bible says about the beginner, the moral lawmaker, and the designer, to see if the evidence actually agrees. So let's kick off. What kind of beginner are we really talking about? Because the universe had a beginning, at least four things must be true of that beginner. You can have this conversation with your friends at school. Four things. Number one, now stay with me on this one. The beginner cannot have a cause. It must be true. Why? If the beginner needed a cause, we'd have to ask who or what caused or created him. He would not be the source of all life, and there would be another cause behind him. Therefore, 
The true beginner cannot have a cause. And the Bible says God is the source or the cause of all life. Acts 17.25 says this. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life, breath, and everything else. Now the Bible agrees that God created all things. That he is the source of all life, all space, and all matter. We saw that last week. He created everything. Accordingly, he is outside of that and he must be uncaused. And I frequently get asked question we often get shot at at, at, at uh, work or school. is It's a schoolboy question. It's an old one, very basic. Well, who made God? Well, the answer is quite obvious. Nobody made God. Because somebody made God, there'd be another creator behind him. And behind him, and behind him, and behind him. But eventually you've got to get back there. God does not need a cause, for he did not have a beginning. Now let me be clear about this. This will clarify it. Not everything needs a cause. Only what has a beginning. You make, That's helpful to write that down. Not everything needs a cause. Only what has a beginning. God is in a different category than we are. We are not eternal. God is because the beginner is outside of time because he created time, space and matter. And therefore he is outside of time, therefore he is eternal. In the same way that gods and human, God and humans have some points of similarity, but in many ways comparing God to a human is like comparing a spear of broccoli to a dog. It's a different category. Both are alive, but they are not the same. They're in different categories. Now, when a person asks who made God and that, they're making a category mistake. In the same way, the spear of broccoli and a dog is, you can't compare the two. One is a vegetable, the other one's a mammal. Broccoli is not conscious. A dog is. A dog has feelings, can make sounds and can relate to people. Broccoli can't. <laughs> broccoli can't learn. A dog can. Although I'm sure some parents keep telling them, telling the kids, keep in this, you'll be smart. <laughs> they aren't in the same category. So the, one of the attributes of a beginner is this. No one made God. He wasn't created because he's outside of time. He is uncreated. That's one of the key characteristics. Second, what kind of beginner? He must be outside of time. He must be eternal. Because time was created with the universe. All of the physicists today, including Stephen Hawking, will tell you that. The beginner who created time must have existed before time began, right? This means the beginner existed and does exist in a different dimension. We call that dimension, here it is, eternity. When somebody talks about a different dimension, don't feel uncomfortable about it, that's okay. God lives in eternity, which is outside of time, space, and matter. Eternity has no past. It has no present, and it has no future. That's why the Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's outside of all of that. It's outside of time, that beginner. Now, notice, interestingly, what the Bible has to say and how it agrees with the beginner being outside of time, which is what the physicists tell us. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, 
before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Outside of time. Psalm 93 clearly says this. Your throne was established long ago, for you are from all eternity. Isaiah 26, 4, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Before time began. Here's another couple. The Bible agrees that the beginner is outside of time, but he's eternal. Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. That's one of his attributes. He's eternal. He's not created 1 Corinthians 2, 7. No, we speak God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Just what the physicists say. So the beginner, the Bible describes, is outside of time. He is clearly, one of his attributes, the second attribute, is that he is eternal. The third kind of attribute that this kind of beginner must have is he must have great power. We've seen evidence that the beginner must have imaginably great power last week. How could anyone? I mean, we have enough trouble creating a vegetable garden. Let <laughs> <laughs> alone the universe. And now, I was walking up Mount Wellington yesterday. I thought, whoa, that's a lot of dirt went from out there somewhere. I thought, whoa. I mean, it is staggering the power. How could anybody create galaxies or our sun, moon and planets? How about the other scale? Atoms. Do you know the power of splitting uranium? It is gargantuan, mind-blowing, far beyond what we can possibly fathom. A beginner, like that we looked at last week, must have power at the very highest level. Must have. The word that we use for that in a church is omnipotence. He has all power. Omnipotent. He's got all the potency. Which means a beginner must be all powerful. That will be one of his attributes. The Bible ascribes this type of power to the beginner that we've looked at. Notice this, Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls each of them by name? God is a God of unbelievable detail. Because of his great power, a mighty strength, not one of them is missing. That is amazing. Look at that. Jeremiah 25 says, With my great power and outstretched time, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. And Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched time. Nothing is too hard for you. Now today, that is a word right there for some of you. 
Some of you are in very difficult situations, confusing, bewildering, befuddling situations. Remember that nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for Him. What kind of beginner? The fourth attribute that this beginner must have is he must be, whoever he is, he must be incredibly, highly creative. Just think about the, the amazing diversity in life. How many of you love to watch nature programs? Yeah. I used to love to watch David Attenborough for many, many years. It stuck in my craw that he was, a, he was a, an atheist for many years, but you know, in his former years, he's begun to acknowledge, or before he died, he began to acknowledge God. He said, this is ridiculous. The greatest atheist that was ever around, a man by the name of Anthony Flew, wrote 35 books on why I'm an atheist, completely reversed his decision and started to write back the other way, why I'm now a theist. Because of the incredible complexity that he saw. He said, this is rubbish that this came from chance. And he's highly, his name is Sir Anthony Flew, look him up. You can Google him as well as I can. Written some amazing books. So this beginner must be highly creative. We found mountains and deserts and waters and trees and insects. I saw, I mean, oh, just even yesterday, I mean, I saw a bird I'd never seen in my life before walking up my Wellington. This thing had a bright, iridescent yellow head. Unbelievable. It may want it, but it's just amazing. You know, amphibians and fish and all kinds of shapes from delicate butterflies to thundering elephants. It's phenomenally diverse. Phenomenal. Do you know that? There are over 300,000 species of beetle. Species. 300. I don't make two. That's enough. <laughs> but God loves diversity. He loves diversity. He's incredibly creative. And not one of those 300,000. Imagine trying to differentiate between each of those species, 300,000 beetles. They're all different. He certainly has a very creative mind, whoever that God is. Infinitely more creative than what we are. The biblical God made all things. And a few verses testify to his creative capacity. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God created the creatures of the sea, says Genesis 1. And every winged bird and kind. And God said, let the land produce living creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals. I love my daughters in Uganda and some of the incredible wildlife there is stunning. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. I was just looking at the dirt in front of a little box. We've got that outside of our breakfast window there. And in the little box, we've got three little boxes and all black soil. And out of some of these things that actually Desmond gave me, these little things that look identical, all of a sudden one bursts up with absolutely assaulting colour that's iridescent red. And right next to it is amazing yellows, which are just, you know, not just yellow, it's yellow, it's yelling yellow, beautiful, all out of the sun. And just so beautifully, systematically and consistently coloured. Just such beauty. Ever been struck by the beauty in nature? And thought, wow, amazing. Amazing. So our list so far is this, that the beginner cannot have a cause. He must be eternal and omnipotent and incomparably creative. So, so far we've found some fingerprints. That's all we've got at the moment, fingerprints. 
that maybe this could resemble the God of the Bible. Maybe. Now let's look at the design part. What kind of a designer? What can we learn from design that we saw last week about what the designer must be like? Well, first of all, the designer must care about his creation. Everywhere we look, whether it's out into the universe or inside a single cell, guys, we find the evidence of carefully planned design. My favourite illustration, because I, I really appreciate fine engineering. If you have, take our good old amoeba again, remember this thing, the most simple, basic cell that we've got in life, to get from A to B. How does it do that? How does an amoeba get from A to B? Well, simple. Not so simple. Japanese scientists have seen this. And I've seen it on the appropriate microscopes. Out the back of this amoeba, which is kind of like a cylinder like this, an oval, there's, an, there's a propeller. Think of it like an outboard motor. And it gets from here to here by turning it. They have calibrated that its propeller moves at 50,000 RPM. Sorry, ladies, or those of you who don't appreciate it. But it's fast. That's 50,000 revs a minute. Okay, just keep that in mind. What the Japanese scientists are stunned by is that in one quarter of one turn of the propeller doing 50,000 RPM, so 90 degrees, it can stop and go back the other way at 50,000 RPM. Not only that, I mean, imagine doing that to a jumbo jet engine. Stopping it within one quarter of a turn and going back the other way at 50,000 RPM. We, we can't do that. But the amazing thing is that thing assembles itself. I've seen it. The rotor, the stators, and the gearbox. Incredible design. That's called a bacterial... Oh, you can see that. You look that up, you want to see that yourself? You look up bacterial flagellum. You'll see that, and you can show people that. Explain that to me. How does that work? If we saw, I was watching this week, my, my father-in-law, Tesla, the new electric car by Elon Musk, and you see the incredible robot welding and all that. Amazing, 160 robots in their factory. And you think, okay, that's easy. But what say you went there and there were no robots and the car was starting to assemble itself? What? I mean, that's... How's that? You, you first of all think that this is, you know, you'd want to go down and let me have a look at this. How's that motor? You know, yeah, that's real. How's it doing that? How are the wheels just coming from nowhere, fabricating themselves and just whoop, appearing in the right spot so you can steer? Amazing. But that's what happens all the time and we blithely ignore that. Give that to one of your friends to explain. Put the pressure back on them. How does that work? See how they come up with that. Our God is incredibly creative. So, we've seen that the universe was designed to support life on earth. Here's a question. Why would someone or something design everything in such detail if they didn't care? I mean, it's like, I can tell Kevin cares because when he comes to my place, the dishwasher is stacked Precisely. He takes care. Even the forks and the knives go up the right way around. <laughs> They're not just all thrown in. And I can tell somebody personal took care of my dishwasher. <laughs> it's an evidence of personal care. Same for God. 
And this agrees with the Bible. Listen to what the Bible says about God's ongoing care and love for his creation. Nahum 1, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. 1 Peter 5, 7, a good verse for some of you today again. Cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. And we all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes him will not perish, but have a lasting life. And here's a great one, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates, notice the initiative here, his own love for us in this, what while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's another one. God is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. I've already said that. I've duplicated myself here. So what kind of designer? Attribute number six. Whoever this designer is, he must be incredibly intelligent. More intelligent than anybody or anything that we can imagine. Notice what the Bible says, Psalm 147.5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. That's clearly declared. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Who else does? Who's got the processing power to keep track of everybody's thoughts? Not even the NSA can do that. And the thoughts of the heart. He must be supremely intelligent. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That verse there is a word to some of you today. You're being living your lives one way. Forgetting that you will, this is the, it is as real as steel, stand before a God and give an account for every idle word and every deed that we've done. There is nothing that escapes his attention. He doesn't forget like we do. He knows everything, John 1, uh, 1 John 3, 20 says. He knows everything. The designer cares and he's supremely intelligent. And that's, those scriptures strengthen potentially a match of the God of the Bible. We've found more of the designer's fingerprints. Now, a common question that I hear, oh, yeah, 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 but given enough time, given enough chance, Surely that could have produced life in the universe. Anybody heard that? Mm, Not many. Oh, some. Some, okay. So the answer to that is this. Time and chance do not produce complex design, as we saw last week, or life. Chance is nothing. Chance is not intelligent. Chance is random. Randomness does not produce meaning. So it cannot produce ordered, complex design, regardless of time. Adding time and ending chance does not explain design. For example, suppose you came with me and we went in a a little Cessna aircraft and there we had three buckets of confetti, red, white and blue. And we got up to a thousand metres. Okay, here it is. And then, what is the chance, I ask you, of creating, and we get right above your house, and we go, now, and we drop the three buckets. What is the chance of creating a perfectly formed New Zealand flag on your back lawn? What are you shaking your heads for? Huh? It's very low, right? Why? Because natural laws will mix up 
or randomise the confetti, right? When it'll go over to your neighbour's place and you have to clean their mess up. <laughs> it'll randomise it. Now, but I say, oh, let's allow more time, more ch- Okay, let's crank it up to 10,000 feet now. What's going to happen when you move to 10,000 feet? Taking the aircraft higher, dropping the confetti yields even less of a chance because time and chance does not produce complex designs. You want to hit that one? Do we have a flag? We had a flag. Okay, it disappeared. <laughs> That's fine. So, so far, we've looked at six attributes or characteristics that a designer or a beginner must possess. Now, lastly, what can we learn about the moral lawmaker? What must he be like? We saw last week that there must be a judge for all laws. Somebody must have authority to punish those who break the law. Laws would be a farce if we could break them without consequence. So the moral lawmaker must be able to enforce his laws with all people, at all places, and at all times. And that seems to me to align a little with the Bible here, which claims that God is the universal judge. He's the only person that can fit the attribute of judging all people in all places, from all times and all eras. That is what the Bible seems to suggest here and clearly state in other places. God is a righteous judge, Psalm 9. He will judge the world in righteousness. He's absolutely fair, by the way, because he's got all the facts. He will govern the people with justice. Jesus, speaking, uh, I was speaking of Jesus, Acts 10. Jesus is the one whom God appointed as judge, now look at this, of the living and the dead. Huh? Come on. Hosea 9.9, God will remember their wickedness and punish. That's one of the great hopes of Christians. You see, because not everybody gets punished appropriately here for the things they did. Some get off scot-free. Some rip people blind and go to their graves happy people. We have to have the full justice and God is the one that can give that. You are Lord at the same time. So there's punishment, judgment, punishment and reward. Part of a, a proper justice system. Oh Lord, you are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he's done. The Bible agrees that only God as a moral lawmaker has the right to judge, to punish, and to reward all people. So, the moral lawmaker, not his people, is the moral law source, the moral lawmaker. And he must be able to keep it himself too. This would mean this moral lawmaker must be perfect. The Bible says the moral lawmaker is in fact morally perfect. Notice this, Matthew 5.48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Leviticus 19.2. Because the Lord, I say, be holy, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Amazing. So, so far we've seen eight fingerprints of an ultimate being or God who is a beginner, a designer, and a moral lawmaker. 
Now, for those of you who weren't with us the last few weeks, I'm just wrapping this, this part of this argument up, which started two weeks ago. The question now I want to go back to is which of the four worldviews that we mentioned last week do the facts support? Which ones do the evidence support you? Does it, do the evidence and the facts support atheism or pantheism or deism or theism? We looked at four. Well, let's look at this and knock some of these out now. Let's start to clear some of the decks. Number one, atheism does not match the data. Because there was a beginning of the universe. And atheism believed that the universe had always been there because they got a problem if it began from nothing. So their premise there, the beginning of the universe, that it's always been here, is false. False. And they think that nothing caused the universe, it just happened. False. What about the design of the universe? They say there's no mind out there. That's false because only intelligence can create complex design. You want to get complex, you look at drug manufacturing. That's not, that's this drug, you know. Time and chance cannot cause complex design. And the moral law, their reaction to it being violated at their expense shows they truly do believe that you shouldn't steal my stuff. Or you shouldn't punch me in the face. Some atheists say there isn't, uh, they believe there's no moral law, but their reaction to it having been violated at their expense shows they truly do believe it. So if somebody steals, but if somebody steals from them, boy, they are upset. Atheism cannot explain the beginning of the universe, the design found throughout the universe, and the existence of a moral law. It checks that out. So the facts do not point to atheism. Pantheism. Well, that doesn't match the facts either. Pantheists believe there is no difference between God and nature. Now, friends, the painter is not the painting. There's a big difference. The intelligence is with the painter. And Paul warns about this. He says they've begun to worship the creation rather than the creator. So God is the creator and we are his creation. We are not God. God is God and you are not. And as we're seeing, the world had a beginning. And so did all life. So how can people who had a beginning become the one who never began? Doesn't make sense, right? On the moral law, here's what some well-known pantheists have said. Good and evil are one and the same. Swami Vidakandanda. And here's another one. There's no difference between the devil and the divine. There's Bhagwa Sri Ranshi. He crackers. <laughs> Pantheists also believe that they can, by enlightenment, become God. But God has always known he was God. And anyone who suddenly realises, hey, I'm God, is not God. <laughs> So the facts do not point to pantheism. How about deism? Just about there. Deists agree. There's a beginner, a designer, and a moral lawmaker. 
But once he created everything, they say he left the universe on its own and he's no longer involved. Now we're going to see, even starting next week, that this view is fatally flawed. Because here's the deal. If God exists, statement on this, if God exists, miracles are possible. Fair. Fair logic. If God can do a miracle in creating the world out of nothing, then nothing is off the table. I mean, what's that compared to creating the universe? To be fair and consistently logical. No difficulty in smaller miracles. So the facts don't point to deism either. But what about this thing called theism? Theism maintains that there is one God who created the universe. And so far, out of those four views, theism is the best match for the facts. Does that seem to fit the facts that we've looked at around the beginner, around the designer, and a moral lawmaker? So looking at the question we started with, which God? Which of the four contradictory worldviews have the facts supported? What does the evidence point to? I want to suggest to you It could be theism here. We need to summarise this now and put the pieces together that will be discovered so far. Uh, So far, our jigsaw shows this. Truth exists and it can be known. Remember, any denial of truth presupposes truth, so the existence of truth is inescapable. Because as I say, there is no truth, they're saying that's true. Remember, any denial of truth presupposes truth. And while we can't know all truth absolutely due to our human limitations, we can know many truths to a high degree of certainty, i.e. what the the courts call beyond reasonable doubt. Father, today, I thank you that you brought people here that are searching in the depths of their heart for you. Nobody or nothing, Lord, I know can satisfy more than you. I pray as you draw people that they would start to sense you in an increasing measure. And they will be drawn towards you and your incredible plan and love. Thank you that you are more real than steel. that you've loved us before the world began. You designed us in your mind lovingly and for a purpose. Holy Spirit, speak to people, Lord. Father, your word says that when you search for me with all of your heart, then we will find you. Thank you for drawing people today. Thank you for challenging people. Thank you for straightening out our thinking, Lord. Thank you for this time to focus on you as a beginner, on you as a designer, on you, Lord, that within our hearts, 
you write the laws of fairness. And in our hearts, you draw us to you. And without you, we're not complete. Father, I pray that your spirit would bless each and every one here today. In Jesus' precious name.